All right, thank you for coming. I hope the roads weren't too bad. No, not compared to last week. It's good. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we always have to come together and the privilege that it is um, to be able to just get into your word in community and wrestle with what it is that you have for us. Lord, I just pray that your spirit, your presence would be felt here and that, um, that our conversations and our discussions would draw us closer to you and closer in an understanding of the love that you have for us and the love um, that you have that ultimately sent your son and the interaction that he wants to have with us. Lord, I just pray that our time together will be honoring and pleasing and glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Eric, if you're listening, maybe not live, but later, thank you for the hard stuff. These, this text, there's a lot of it, um, and so what I hope to be able to do is kind of um, create some chunks a little bit, and then bring some of these overarching themes that we'll find back together um, and how they apply to us today. So um, we don't always um, under, like what we're going to dive into today. Sometimes we read things and we are thinking, uh, what? Did he actually really just say that? Yes, he did. Oftentimes, but it's also really important to take a look at the context in which he said them because sometimes that context doesn't necessarily apply to us. And I think what we dive into right away at the end of chapter 10 is one of those examples. So in your Bibles, if you are in a blue Bible, um, page um, 815, we're in chapter 10 and we're starting with verse um, 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those in his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, that feels different. Not words that <laughs> we necessarily expect to hear from Jesus, um, especially since we just got done celebrating the birth of the Prince of Peace, right? And so this doesn't really jive with what we just celebrated with Christmas. And so I want to just take a minute to remember, because we talked about this back in chapter 3 when we were, you know, going over the Beatitudes, talking about the Beatitudes. And we have a little bit different definition or thought about what peace is. So if we read this right away and, and just say, don't think that I have come to bring peace on earth, we may think the kind of peace that we automatically like are drawn to. So the absence of conflict, the absence of battle, the absence of, of op opposition, the absence of um, anything that we don't want to feel actually, right? So in our mind, this is the peace that we really think we want. And I oftentimes, um, 
I oftentimes hear people say, I just want to experience peace. And when I hear people say that, I hear them saying, I'm tired of feeling this way. I don't want to experience this anymore. I want this to all go away, and I just want to be happy. And that is not the kind of peace that Jesus is, is speaking of here. He didn't promise that kind of peace, and we already established that in the Beatitudes in chapter 3. So this peace is different, and we'll get into that. But then he says he is he came with a sword. Well, a sword is a battle weapon, right? And so what do we draw? What is this metaphor with a sword? The metaphor for a sword, it means that it is the result of like a division in a family or a division amongst people. So he is saying that he um, is bringing a sword. And so we can expect division, and that's what he is talking about here. Jesus is talking to his disciples still here. Remember back last week, he's addressing his disciples. He's preparing them for the opposition that they are going to experience when they go out and minister to people. Okay, so he's telling them, remember, I did not come here to bring peace. I came here with a sword, as a sword. And this is what you can expect. There will be men that are against their fathers, women against their mothers. When people experience Jesus and when they choose to follow him, it's countercultural. At that time, it is now too. And when that happens, there's division in a family. There can be division in a family. Maybe relationships will split apart. You know, I think about my own experience, you know, in this is not even, this is still within Christianity, but growing up in the Catholic Church and then starting to go to an evangelical Baptist church, and I remember coming home and sharing with my mom about all of the things that I was learning. I'm like, they actually use a Bible on Sunday morning. Like, I open it, and I follow along, and it was so different. And I would share all these other things that I would experience. And um, my, my mom was kind of like, what is this? Like, are you in a cult? So different. And she didn't say that then, but later she admitted. She's like, I didn't know what you were doing. Like, what? So there was concern. There wasn't division. There wasn't hard times, you know, um, between us, but it was this, what is she doing? And I think about now, people who are persecuted for their religion, their faith in Jesus, and not, that's an extreme, but not only are people persecuted, but in some countries, they are shunned, they're kicked out of their families because of their faith in Jesus. Some people may even be killed if their faith in Jesus is revealed. And so this what we experience now is what Jesus was talking about even then. So he and what he represents will create divisions in relationships. He doesn't want 
these relationships to be destroyed. He's not telling people this because this is what he wants, but he understands and he's telling his disciples, because of me and who I am and my ministry and what I want from people and what you are going to invite people to and what you have been invited to, there may be division in your family too. So prepare yourself. He's still preparing his disciples. This is what it means to follow me. And he goes on about loving our parents and children. In verse 37, he says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Well, I learned the fifth commandment to honor my parents, and so that sticks in my head. I honor my parents Um, And we have chosen to honor our parents now by living next door to them. It's a choice that we have made. Some, what? All right. I know, right? Some people think it's weird. Like, is something wrong with you? Why do you live next door to your parents? Or people think there's something wrong with my parents. Why would you want to live next door to your kids? The truth is that we made the choice because we want to be able to honor them as they age and keep them in their house as long as we can. Um, which, I mean, that sounds lovely, and it's true, but there's another little piece to it. Um, They don't want to live with us, and we don't want them to actually live with us either. So we'll keep them in their houses as long, or in their house as long as we can. So I think about this, we're called to honor our parents, and we are also told that children are a gift from God, and they they are our responsibility to raise up. And so how... Why is he saying this? If you love your parents or you love your children more than me, you're not worthy of me. What the, the point that he is trying to make is, if your parents or your children, and I, and I feel like perhaps it's more applicable um, with children, and I see this more and more today in our culture, if parents are more devoted um, to their children, children than they are to following Jesus, that's a problem. That's a problem. Jesus is saying, if, if these people are more important than me in your life, that's a problem. So parent, being a principal in the middle school, um, I saw parents oftentimes that were Um, What I think back now, like bulldozer parents, lawnmower parents, parents that would want to come in and pave the way and and fix everything for their kids so that they weren't experiencing any hardships or or hard things in life. And so I think about, were those the kind of parents, like their whole life is devoted to raising their children, making sure that they have the happiest childhood possible— And what is the result of that? Well, Jesus says that, you know, if if they're more important than I am, then you don't have me or you're not with me. And societally now it's a problem because then we have these adults who don't know how to deal with adversity, right? So he's, he's saying this, you know, because he's talking about relationship with him. Nothing should be in the way 
of your relationship with me. Steve and I have um, a rule. We actually call it a vacation policy. And um, we've had it since the kids are little. And it, what it is meant to do and our intention is to prioritize our relationship. So this is an example. You know, God is the center of our marriage. And then he has put us together, right? And then we have these children. And so in order for Steve and I to maintain our healthy relationship, we have this vacation policy. We don't vacation with children. If the children are with us, it's a trip because there's no relaxation, right? I tell parents this all the time. When is the last time you went on, the, on vacation? Well, we went to Disney last year with the kids. I'm like, nope, not a vacation. Vacation is someplace without your children, and it's where you and your spouse get to devote time to one another and take care of your relationship. That's a vacation. So we're real good at it, and my kids would tell you, we're real good at it. They don't get to go anywhere. Not true, but we just go without them more than we go with them. So we're, we are you know, preserving that relationship. We're prioritizing our relationship, and this is what Jesus wants. He wants children. He wants parents to prioritize their relationship with him over their children or their parents. So 38 and 39 um, can be a little bit challenging again. And whoever does not take his cross or her cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, his audience, what does it mean to take his cross? Like literally, pick up the cross, take the cross? In his, audi his audience would understand this because if a person was sentenced to death by crucifixion, they would actually carry a part of the cross in which they were going to be crucified to the site of the crucifixion. So they would understand, like, literally, they are taking up their cross. And he's saying, he's implying that by following him, you may actually lose your life. You may actually be persecuted. You may be a martyr dying for, your, for the sake of your faith. It also brings up this idea um, in 39 helps with this more, maybe more figurative understanding. If your life is your will, like my life, if it's my will, it's more important than Jesus' will for my life. And when you choose not to follow him, you're, when you choose your own will, I'm going to do this my way, you're not choosing him, and therefore you don't have the reward. You're not with him. And so losing your life looks like abandoning your will and taking on his will for your life. So this idea of the cross um, also gives this impression, this idea of die to self. My will is not my own. So when we die to self, we're giving ourselves to Jesus. 
And that's what this can be illustrating. This takes, I think, um, I think it's pretty straightforward, but I think it also is a challenge, even though it is so straightforward, because it, to give up our will for our life and what we want to do requires a tremendous sense of humility or a posture of humility. To give up what we want requires humility. And then he moves on from there in 40 and 42. He's still addressing his 12 disciples. And he's going to talk about the rewards for enduring what it means to follow him. Verse 40, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will, be no more, he will by no means lose his reward. I mean, say all that ten times really fast. <laughs> what is coming out of here is very interesting. This idea of receiving, the word receive is repeated so many times. And this goes back to last week when Eric was talking about this idea of the disciples being received in somebody's home. If somebody is going to extend the hospitality for a disciple to stay in their home with them, that is a significant thing. Because what that means is that they are open to the disciple and therefore they're open to God. So this idea of receiving or being willing to receive is a big deal. And again, I can't help but link this idea of receiving back to this posture of humility. What does it take for us to be in a position that we're willing to receive somebody else? When he talks about these little ones, in various places, you know, throughout the New Testament, little ones and little children are referred to. And we'll see a, different, a difference um, later in Matthew. But here, he's actually talking about little ones being referred to as God's special people, like the disciples, the, the ones who have chosen to follow him. These are the special, or the, um, the little ones. And so even when you give one of these disciples, you receive them into your home, you give them even just a cup of water, which would, be, would have been in that time, and even I think now, one of the smallest expressions of hospitality that you could possibly offer. So even that is an openness to receive that disciple and then receive God, because if they're open to the disciple, who is a disciple of Jesus, they're open to Jesus as well. That's the thought. Now, after the clarification, and he's talked to the 12, he switches his focus, and he's talking to a crowd. And he's talking to this crowd because during this time, there is a rise in doubt about identity, 
and there is growing opposition. Even though those that are following Jesus in this time are still the minority, there is a growing sense of, wait a minute, could this possibly be true? Who did he say he was? That doesn't sound right. So now he's talking to an audience, a group of people, not just his disciples. So in chapter 11, now we're on page 816, chapter 11. We're doing the whole thing, but I'm not going to read it all at once. We'll start with one. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen, or what you, what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are risen up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So here we have John the Baptist. Wait a second. We saw John the Baptist in chapter 3. Why is John questioning Jesus' identity when back in chapter 3, they have already had this interaction, remember? John the Baptist, John baptized Jesus. So you know who this guy is. Why are you now questioning? Why are you now sending people out and asking, are you the one or are we supposed to be waiting for another? Was it because he was hearing about these deeds from prison and wondering why he was perhaps still in prison? Why hadn't the judgment, maybe he was thinking, why hadn't the judgment that Jesus had proclaimed would come to the unrighteous sinners, those who were rejecting himself, John, and Jesus, the people who actually put John in prison, why did that judgment not come? Why am I still in prison? If you're out there doing these miracles, why am I still here? This could have let a lot of doubt creep into John, which would cause him to send them out to ask him the question, are you the one? Jesus lists all the miracles, reminding John, these are significant. Nobody else could do these. Like, who do you think I am? Who do you think performed these miracles? It's me. After um, another thought that came out from our discussion this morning um, on these verses was this idea from that you know, was John expecting something and didn't receive it? Was John putting his own expectations on Jesus? He taught about the justice and judgment, but John didn't see the kind of justice and judgment that he wanted or expected. So is this why John thought that maybe he wasn't the Messiah? There was a doubt Maybe we should still be waiting because you're not doing what I thought you were going to do. And if John is doubting about those that followed his 
If John is doubting, what about those that followed John's? Are they now going to start doubting? Because John was this prophet who came to share, to, you know, pave the path, lead the way for Jesus. And so if he's doubting, what impact does that have on the rest of the people who are following him? And you can see how this doubt, this little bit of doubt, just kind of leads to this idea, we have these expectations. If we put specific expectations on Jesus, if we pray for something specific, or we tell him how we want him to answer our prayer, and he doesn't answer it that way, or he doesn't answer it at all, what happens then? What happens to us in our relationship with Jesus and our belief and understanding in who Jesus is? It's kind of like a battle of the wills, right? For those of you that have strong-willed children, please don't tell me you wonder where they came from. These battle of the wills is about perhaps a lack of humility. Who's stronger? Who's, you know, who's smarter? A parent and a child? I, engage, I have engaged in so many battles <laughs> in my life. And so what is it that causes doubt? What was it that caused John to doubt? and ask the question if they should be waiting for another. Verse 6 says, blessed, blessed is the one that is not offended by me. Is there a connection? I was pondering this earlier. Is there a connection between doubt and being offended? What Jesus does, how he interacts with people, and how people respond to it, some people are offended. Because in that time, if you are righteous, you should not be interacting with an unrighteous or unclean person. But this is what Jesus and John did. And those people found it highly offensive. So he's saying, blessed are the people who are not offended by me, that can see the wisdom and understand the motive behind my deeds. So after this, he turns... Um, he continues talking about to the crowd. And if we're not, um, if we remember, he's explaining, like, hello, you guys, remember who John is? If you're, if you're having any doubt about John's identity or my identity, let's revisit who this guy is. So he goes on in, in verse 7. As they went away, the disciples talking to Jesus went back to John. Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is him of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, 
who will prepare your way before you. So here Jesus is speaking to the crowd. This is who John is. Remember back when we were looking at his prophetic ministry? He was in the wilderness. He didn't look fancy. He wasn't dressed like a king, but he was in the wilderness, which was not a pleasant place. Usually not some place you want to go. And there he was, teaching, preaching, paving the way for Jesus, and people still followed him. And he's saying, well, why did you go out there? Don't you remember you went out there? You went to the wilderness to see this guy. He is who he says he is, and he was preparing the way for me. And so Jesus wants to remind this crowd that this is indeed John, and you can trust him. John was sent by God as a prophet, like he was the real deal. He was sent to lead the way for Jesus. And he was worthy of listening to. That's why the people went out there. But they needed a little reminder. He goes on to make um, a comparison in the next um, verses. Verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He has ears to hear, let him, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so again, another, another way of saying, yep, this is John, and he's actually making a comparison to John, or a comparison. Elijah was a prophet from the Old Testament, and the, his audience would have recognized and known who Elijah is. And so for him to make that reference makes sense to them, and they revered him as a great prophet that was coming to spread, share, the word from God. Well, John is the next to come after Elijah, and what he has done is even greater because John is in this space between eras, right? This space before Jesus, and then this space when Jesus has come and he is on earth and he is doing ministry with him. So John kind of sits in this kind of cool place that nobody else gets to sit. He's between these two eras, and he was chosen for that. He's this transitional figure. He's kind of a big deal. The kingdom of God is better, and so therefore John, who gets to usher in that era, is better than new Elijah. The other thing about being born of a woman is woman here is just meant to be figurative for human. And so there's this idea of comparing 
um, being born then of a woman or human compared to being born now in this new era, the era of the kingdom of heaven. Which would you rather be born in? Before Christ? After Christ? It was probably easier, right? If Jesus is walking around, he's doing ministry, he's got his disciples doing ministry, and you think about the Old Testament and the people who held on to that hope and had less of an a view into what this kingdom of heaven looked like. Verses 13 through 15, um, at the very end, if you are willing to accept it, like listen carefully, Jesus comparing John to Elijah, pay attention to the timeline, pay attention to who these two men are. It was John that was ushering in the prophetic hope of the Old Testament. You can trust him. He is who he says he is. He continues, Jesus, to address this crowd with more illustrations because, I mean, more illustrations are always better. And maybe with one illustration you catch one group and another you might catch another. But he's teaching and he's trying to show these people what the kingdom of God, what the, um, the kingdom of heaven looks like with Jesus and how he lives and how we are to follow him. So we're back into verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge for you and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he was a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of the tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So I um, completed my class on um, the parables of Jesus, and in doing so, a lot of my classmates and I um, were amused by the fact that Jesus said some pretty funny things. And he used some interesting analogies and stories to communicate what he wanted to. And um, I came to the conclusion that it seems like maybe Jesus was a little sassy to get his point across. And then somebody, a friend, reminded me, yeah, but Jesus' sass wasn't really sinful. Like, oh. Because I was like, I'm just, I'm like Jesus. Sassy, it's good, but Jesus is wasn't quite as, not quite the same. Very direct, though. He pulls no punches. So he's saying, you're like children, like kids, like kids playing in the playground or somewhere in the park, and there's these group of kids that are playing this game. Like, I remember playing, um, um, Foursquare? And then we'd say, come on, come and play. And they'd say no. Or there was like a group of girls that were doing the jump rope, and they're like, come on, Amy. I'm like, uh, no, I don't want to play that game. And so this illustration of children, children tend to be selfish. 
It doesn't take a master's degree in child psychology to know that children like things the way they like things and they want it their way. So the fact that he's using the illustration of a child is like, you're acting like children, right? Here's this game that's being played, here's this opportunity, and you're sitting back here like, nah, I don't like that game. I'll just sit back here and play my game. And so this humility that he requires is, and this is another form of this humility that he's looking for. He's comparing these generations. He's telling them that, that they're like children. We do this all the time, right? We compare generations. They don't have this figured out. Like, how are these kids even going to make it? They can't even, like, go 10 minutes without their phone. So this childishness, it's about their will. It's a battle of the wills again. And now the reality of the consequences come into play. He's saying, this is what it looks like. This is what you're doing. This is what you're choosing. And now, by the way, here's what you are facing. Verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Kerizin, Kerizin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if your mighty works, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyra and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyra and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done to Saddam, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Saddam than for you. So, this is where he is. He is talking, he's back in this um, range, like his homeland. So, he's talking to these people where the majority of his miracles and works have taken place and people have seen them and they still haven't repented. And he's saying, are you kidding me? You've seen all of these miraculous works and you still don't believe, you still have not repented, turned away from your sinful behavior and turned to me? That's unfortunate for you because Capernaum, who by the way, is considered Jesus' kind of like home um, spot for his ministry and probably saw the bulk of miracles, he says to them, your reward will not be what you think it is. Your reward will be the darkness, the underworld, not what you think it's going to be. This grand comparison, too. Sodom is like Sin City of that time. And he's saying if they would have received and seen all of these miracles, they would have repented. And they probably would be still in good shape now. But you didn't repent. Their judgment is going to be more tolerable than the judgment that you are going to experience. 
harsh judgment consequences, and he's just laying it on the line. So then he goes on. The end of chapter 11 ends a little bit more gently in um, verses 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things under the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That last part, I think, is a pretty um, common thing or a common verse that people um, hear about, this idea of the yoke. But this conversation with his father, he's saying he's, there's this hidden... Um, the, he's, he's hidden something from the wise and the um, understanding. And this sounds like the correct posture, right? To be wise and understanding, this is how we're supposed to be. But Jesus is speaking of those who are stubbornly refusing to repent because they know better. So we go, we're going back to this, and he's saying, you have hidden it from them, and you have given it to the little children who represent those who have received Jesus. Again, it seems that humility is a prerequisite for receiving these rewards. There's a theme in there. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal, when you know Jesus, you will know God. No one can come to the Father without the acceptance of Christ Jesus. Jesus is saying, this is who I am. This is how the kingdom of heaven comes. Ch um, verses 28 and 30, it's an invitation. Here, Jesus is describing um, weary and burdened people, people who are tired, tired of working, tired of the journey that they're on, people who are carrying a heavy load. He's saying, it doesn't have to be this way. Take my yoke. It's this image of like plowing the fields with the oxen and you get more power from two oxen together. So there's this yoke that ties them, kind of puts them together and you get more power. And the burden of one ox pulling that plow is lifted because now there's two. So the burden is light. This vision or this um, example of the yoke is um, a metaphor that Jesus is using because um, the Jewish law was often referred to as the yoke. And it referred to, and it can be referred to, a burden, the heavy load of the law and the legalistic tradition. It can be overwhelming. It can be too much. Jesus is creating this image when we are yoked together, when Jesus and us 
are yoked together, the burden is more manageable. It doesn't mean that it won't be hard or without challenges. It doesn't mean that you won't experience pain. It doesn't mean that I am going to do the fishing for you, but it says, learn from me. I will teach you what this life is like. I will show you what this is like. And this life with me being yoked with me is easier. And it's easier because we'll do it together. That's the invitation that Jesus is giving in, in the, this last part. And I feel like we hear this often. And when things are hard, sometimes people will say, you know, Jesus' yoke, it's easy, his burden is light. Not always that easy, right, to just lift the burden, let him, let him go. And so this invitation, Jesus is, is telling everybody, this is who I am. This is what this means. The offer is yours. The invitation is yours. And with the acceptance of it, you accept me, you see how I live, and you will see how the kingdom of heaven operates. And that's ultimately what Jesus' ministry is, right? Showing people the kingdom of God and what it means to live. And so in this entire section that we have covered, it seems like there's battles of the will and this idea of humility and setting ourselves aside to understand who Jesus is and how he wants us to live so that the kingdom of God is glorified, understood, and other people can come to Jesus. And so lots of the questions that you are going to have with your discussion groups really talk about some of these ideas of humility and will and how we see Jesus. And so I will be, I'll be excited to see what comes up out of your conversations and your discussions when we come back um, three-ish, four minutes before the end of the hour. Okay, have fun. <laughs>